Hey, this is Kevin. And this is Josh. And on this episode of the Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry, we hear from Michael Brown, the partner and director of operations for Digital Caviar. This is an episode that we recorded earlier this year. Mike was honorably discharged from the U.S. Navy, and this is how he transitioned out of being a U.S. military veteran into the film industry. So, Mike, I uh, appreciate you coming in and uh, talking to us. Um, you know, can you um, just start off and, you know, give people the 60-second uh, rundown as to who you are? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, so uh, Mike Brown, I'm a partner at Digital Caviar and uh, specialize specifically in uh, day-to-day operations of the company, um, which translates pretty well over to the feature film side when I line producing production management side as well. Uh, and, uh, and then we focus on a lot of development stuff, but I think that's all hats, you know, four portraits of the company. Um, and I've uh, been doing this since probably 2012. 2012, I went on set for the first time as an actor, and uh, that didn't work out too well. Uh, but I did get introduced into the world of production, and, uh, and I fell in love with it. It reminded me very much of uh, my, you know, my previous life uh, in the military and just a bunch of good people hanging out and, you know, and, and kind of uh, all driving towards one single, uh, some single goal and objective. And, you know, and so I just fell in love with it. And I knew this is what I wanted to do. And so uh, I jumped into it with a, a best friend of mine, uh, Conrad, um, who we've known each other since fifth grade. And one thing led to another. We started a company and did things for commercial work for a while and then teamed up with Digital Caviar in uh, 2012 or 2015, excuse me. That transition from the military into this, did you kind of know when you were in the military that you wanted to do something creative or was it just something that kind of happened afterwards as you're exploring what your next step is and you kind of came into it? I had no idea that I was going to do this. I mean, movies when I was in the military where this is like this thing that existed that you went to the theaters and watched or, you know, but and I had no idea that I would want ever land a job in the movie industry. Um, but, uh, you know, it just kind of, I think it just kind of happened, you know, you just, just navigate in the waters when I got out, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I came to Tampa to start a business. Um, entrepreneurship's always kind of been, you know, a passion of mine. Like I, I, I find it very interesting people who take the time and, and, and the risks of starting their own company and it's got lots of ups and downs, but I'm, I'm on board for it. I love the adrenaline rush and I love everything about it. And, uh, and so, you know, it kind of was a natural fit and just one thing led to another and then here I am. And, and you guys have had a pretty interesting, um, uh, the company has had a pretty interesting career arc. You started in commercial world, in the commercial world, and then shifted to, I mean, primarily doing films now. I mean, you do a few commercial jobs from my understanding, but they're, I mean, you guys have definitely flipped the script on what you guys are focusing on. Why are you sticking with films and, and going in that direction? Well, I think, you know, I think I'd, I'd say, I don't know if anybody, I, I, I'm, I don't want to say that nobody starts out wanting to do commercial. I guess if you grow up in the media world with people, parents maybe that did commercials and was in the production industry, maybe you are, have a little bit more of a bigger, a broader um, idea of what it takes to do these things. So you can think of like, oh yeah, like commercials are cool. I, I'd like to make commercials. But I think most people think of like, if they look, think of a career in the film business, they usually, especially from the outside perspective, they think of movies first, right? I mean, that's what we grew up with. I watch this stuff. And like, so if you were to ever ask me if, if, if the possibility of being 
uh, making media, which films, when I was a kid, the first thing I'd think of is like, I want to make movies, right? So when we finally got on set, and it was a, when I got on set, it was a commercial for um, Beef O'Brady's. And I saw this whole big thing go down. Like, I saw the set, and I loved the production aspect of it. But in my head, I was like, man, I can't wait to make my own movie, right? I didn't think, like, oh, I can't wait to start a commercial production company. But to me, it was the natural progression. So I started out wanting – or started, I wanted to make movies, but I knew I had to make commercials first because that was more accessible to me. You know, I can go out and buy a DSLR camera, and I can go talk to my friend who's doing – uh, workout videos and I can do hundred dollar videos for him. You know what I mean? Push him out. Uh, that my boy, uh, my boy, Greg back in the day was our first client, you know what I mean? For like I think a hundred bucks, you know? And so, uh, you know, that's kind of the progression of it. I bought a DSLR. Conrad had a T2, T3i at the time. I went out and bought a T2i and we once and bought some lenses and we did some uh, mandy.com videos to learn how to, to to edit and shoot stuff you know and then we just went out there and practiced and so one thing led to another and we had some clients and we booked bigger clients and bigger clients until we got into the world of uh of verizon and that really springboarded our commercial projects all right started well, out the so, t2i that's uh that's a date that's a date and everything right there yeah right <laughs> well yeah. i mean i can talk about the first projects i ever shot was on the area sr2 if we really want to go dating us back did you boys ever shoot on film no oh. yeah okay <laughs> that, that's a whole other world right there no, never shot on film yeah. nope. it, i mean it's great and i understand like quentin tarantino's you know attitude towards film the actual you know physical device of film but um I, you know compared to how easy and accessible digital is now i'm like uh, you know why yeah, why man. but um not to derail too much um your military background how much do you think that has aided you in you know starting your own business and you know doing movies and what do you feel like what portion of that has kind of given you an advantage? Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people, when they hear military, the first thing they think of is like structured and, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to be, uh, it's actually not what I got away from, got with or took away from the military. Um, I, when I was in the military, I learned a lot of what I do and don't like. And I saw lots of different management uh, styles and I saw lots of different ways to run projects and to manage projects and the, the mentality of just how you approach certain, um, certain challenges and obstacles. And so I knew what it looked like to run something right, and I knew what it looked like to run something wrong. And so when I left the military... I wasn't some dude that woke up at five o'clock in the morning every single day. I hated that. You know what I mean? There's a lot of aspects of the military that I didn't like. Um, but what I did take away from the military was knowing what was what worked really well and what didn't work really well and how to treat people, especially when you're working with a large group of people. You know, some people have experience managing a group of five to 10 people. Um, you know, I worked with a team of 250 people all the time. And my department was anywhere between five to 20. But then I started getting all my qualifications and I started, uh, you know, I was a QC on um, quality control over all the jobs. I had to sign off on everybody's job. And so once I got qualified, I signed off on other departments jobs as well. And so essentially, I worked for a team of much larger than 15, 20 people. I, I managed 60 people at that point because I was looking at their job. So 
eventually you start to realize this works, this doesn't work, but that more importantly, this is how you bring a group of people together to kind of, to, to, to all align for the same thing. You know what I mean? Like to, to, to shoot and to aim for the same thing. And that's what I took away from the military. And I'm happy we actually get dove into this because it was one thing that I was going to bring up somehow. Um, on all the jobs that I work on with DC, I've noticed the great leadership that you got, you and Conrad have. And uh, I know I've personally taken some of that into my company. Um, you guys make sure that the, um, the morale is always very high and that people are taken care of. And it's something that I, I know a lot of us appreciate. And, um, That's awesome. Thank and you. you know, I had uh, a lot of firsthand experience, especially on Dropity, where <laughs> shit got real, real fast. Um, we, we all know that I was um, the, the springboard for all the uh, ghostly activities. I was, I was <laughs> pretty much destroyed by the time the, the job ended. I, you know, for, for those of you that don't know, I actually had a very large bug fly into my eye. That's crazy. Um, a, the wing broke off, scratched my cornea. I was completely out of commission, had to drive two hours home with an eye patch it was um and that was on day six i still have a picture so we'll include that in the instagram post yes we will show we will show the eye patch photo of me sitting on a couch with one eye um and you guys you you know uh, leading up to that we it was a very it was a very uh, tough shoot let's let's call it's it what it was yeah, yeah. um we we touched upon it with uh with andrew with with uh, a lot of the rain the lunch boxes were were getting soaked um safety was a concern and yep. you guys just kind of you know always made sure that we were taken care of the GE department specifically because we were out in the in the elements um but the the whole crew as, as a whole and it was it was noticed and that was i think the first time i really realized like oh these guys they you know because we had we'd already done a few other projects um and and you guys always did the right thing there but it wasn't really tough circumstances so it wasn't a tough set we weren't getting monsooned on yeah, yeah, every yeah. other hour that was the time i was like oh the, they weren't just you know, doing the right thing earlier. They, they actually intend on doing the right thing all the time. Um, how, how do you notice, how, how much do you think culture on set is, is, um, a critical component to the final product? I think it's very important. So, you know, the fact that you brought that up, the variations between productions, oftentimes, you know, I think that's the biggest thing is when everything's going easy, then it's great, right? The fact <laughs> the bug in your eye. Here's a good example. When it's not going easy, that's when you know if your stuff's together or not, right? And I remember that's that that part specifically because first and foremost, you were in pain and I was really concerned about you. Uh, but apart from just the friendship side of it and my boy being hurt, for the first time I know I had to figure out how to actually use production insurance. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I've got it, but what do I do when somebody actually needs it? <laughs> so there was that aspect of it. Everything's a learning curve, right? Never did I think of like, you know, you, you, you always make sure that you got everything there, but then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, well, he's got a bug in his eye. He's going to have to go to the hospital. They're going to have to, I don't know, remove the bug from his eye. Like what, what what's going to go down now? What's the number to call? Who do I call? It's it was at the time it was like, like night. It was, it was like time. 1 a.m. Yeah, or like something. 1 a.m. was like, who do I call? Is there an emergency number that I call? Like it's crazy, right? So you start to realize, oh, well, I guess I better have that stuff handy for me just in case from the management side. So it's little things. Everything's a learning curve, you know, but, um, Ultimately, you know, preparation's everything, but like you can tell the difference between a good managed production and not a good managed production when things start to get really crazy. And Dropity was probably to date 
uh, one of the hardest productions that I've been on. I mean, we accomplished a lot with a very little bit. Um, and, you know, there's a fine line between saying yes to a, a job and no to a job. Um, and that project was definitely pushing it from a budgetary standpoint. Um, we said yes because we wanted to prove that our team could handle something like that. And to this day, I actually used that project to book other projects because it was something so different. But um, but I was definitely very aware that we were pushing the boundaries on that on that job. You know. Yeah, I think it should be said to to not to don't be fearful of failing. You know, like use that as a chance to learn exactly what you need to know the next time around or what you need to be better at. For sure. And that, that's kind of like a big motto of mine. A lot of people that hang out with me know that like, I will always like, I don't like sitting stagnant. I'll always make a decision. Um, and with time and experience, I think that my decisions, no matter what decision I make, I, I, I stand behind them more and more cause I know I have the experience to follow through with them. But I think you always have to make a decision one way or another, you know what I mean? And I don't like just sitting back and not moving forward, um, you know, unless you have to take the time and sit back and think about things a little bit. That's a different story. But like, to me, it's just always about let's move, let's figure this out. Let's move forward. And, you know, I know I'm confident in myself and I'm confident in the team that I have with me to be able to figure this out, especially because I know they're experienced and they can make it happen. You know, and so that's a big, big part of things as well in this industry, you know, production. Within DC, can you talk through um, everybody's responsibilities? Um, I know you guys have a, a pretty sizable team, but then also, you know, at the end of the day, you do hire freelancers, but those freelancers are typically the same freelancers. I mean, you know, we had Andrew on a few episodes ago and, um, I know he's your, he's uh, he's Hyde's go-to gaffer for a reason. Can you, can you just talk through, um, the, the hierarchy at DC and what you guys, um, you know, how you, how you get the job done? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, from a, from a, from a, partner standpoint um it's four partners uh equal shares of the company and uh, we all bring something special to the table um and so conrad and i uh run mostly the day-to-day -day tasks of digital caviar um and i don't want to really there's not really like a specific title that each of us have i am the director of operations but we all contribute in our own you know on our own way um and Todd, uh, the founder of Digital Caviar, I mean, he, I mean, this, the knowledge that he brings uh, on on the technical side and uh, and just an all around freaking amazing guy is, uh, you know, is 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 just insane. You know what I mean? So we all bring something really great to the table. Victor Young brings, uh, you know, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to business, and um, he's not he doesn't really uh, partake too much in the company on a day to day level, um, but he's always there when we're discussing bigger picture things um and he gives his time when he can um but conrad and i are kind of the boots on the ground and we're just the ones that are you know we we live and breathe this you know and so um it's you know really kind of us and they've victor and, and todd you know have come to rely on us in, in the best way possible in trying to make the decisions to continue pushing the company forward in the direction um and so that's kind of what we do with that and then uh you know obviously that translates into a team that we've kind of built, you know, from a production side, you know, you hear people always want to work with the same people. And there's a reason for that. Um, uh, but my thing was over the years from the commercial side all the way into um, now the feature film side, I've come across some extremely talented, very professional people. Um, and when I see that, uh, I want I want to I want them to be a part of what we're doing. Um, and, and oftentimes, once I get into a production um, I really can't see doing a production without those specific people, especially if I've built a relationship and I know what they're good at. Um, because 
at that point there, it just becomes more than just somebody who can do the job and do it right. It becomes, uh, you build a relationship with them. You can talk to them. You can, you can get in debates with them. That's a big thing. You're never going to agree with you somebody all the time. You're not. And so if you feel like, you know, they could be the, the, the best at what they do, but the second you get in a disagreement, everything falls apart. Well, guess what? That's just as important as being good at your job because you're going to be, you have to be able to manage that. Right. Uh, so a lot goes into that stuff. And so when you start to build your own team, that's something that you can champion and get behind. And so that's what I do when I go into these bigger meetings with people who are trying to look at Florida and say, Hey, listen, yeah, we know some productions go down there, but do you guys really have, you know, the resources to be able to support a film like this? And that's where I get up on my pedestal and I, and I, and I pretty much say, yeah, we definitely do. And this is why. And then I just go down the list and, you know, by the time that conversation is done, uh, even if they don't shoot here, they definitely leave the room feeling like Florida knows what they're doing and has the resources and the crew members to make it happen. What are some of the uh, pitfalls that you faced when you had your first company and then compared to when you transitioned over to merging with um, DC? What are some some of the things you kind of had to learn on the fly that you kind of really hadn't known before? Well, Silver Forest Studios was our first company. Carter and I, we started out of the living room of my first of my house, and we started with T2i, T3i DSLR cameras. Um, so obviously, learning equipment uh, was the biggest part of that challenge in the beginning. What you can and can't do with equipment, um, and then obviously the limitations of that equipment. You know, when it comes to the delivery. You know, it might look really good, but then when you start to go to broadcast, is it good enough for broadcast? You know, so you have limitations on certain things. Um, and then, uh, you know, so we what we dealt with at that time was like anything, even still to this day, was trying to find clients, right? I mean, that was like one of the biggest things. You know, you're, you're starting out. Who are you going to go sell your services to? You got to always sell yourself. I'm, I'm still selling myself to this day. Um, and so... I think it's just, I don't know if it was any harder than it is now. It's just a different size. You know, it's just a different type of thing. You know, I was doing things smaller back then. There was not as much overhead. Uh, there wasn't as many things to manage. Um, so obviously not as much money was going out, but not as much money was coming in. Uh, but I think overall, it's just really kind of like taking it day to day and learning as you go. And then, but you always got to continue to have the dream. You got to have something that's driving you. And so uh, when we were Silver Forest Studios, we wanted to be good at commercials. And then when we were Digital Caviar, we wanted to be good at feature films. And that's really the big difference between the two. I think some of the viewers would probably like to hear some of the uh, more recent jobs that you guys have done. And uh, um, I wasn't a part of it, but I know there was a really interesting one that took place here in St. Pete. Um, how do you guys, what, what, what is that project? And then um, how did it come about and what's the final deliverables? Can you just kind of talk through almost like the pre-pro all the way to um, on screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had this really cool opportunity. Um, we were contacted by the uh, Salvador Dali Museum. Um, to essentially uh, come in and interpret a screenplay that was written uh, by Roxanne, um, 
don't remember her last name right now, but a uh, very, very good screenplay. And it was for uh, the Midnight in Paris exhibit, uh, which was going to uh, be a special exhibit that runs in the Dolly from uh, December to March or April time frame. And uh, so when uh, we were contacted by them, um, they said they're looking at several other productions and they had you know, interviewed a couple other people. But they wanted to have us come in and interpret the uh, interpret the script and kind of tell them uh, what we thought about the script, and then went and then went from there. And so Conrad and I went into the into the meeting and uh, we discussed the creative side of it and what they were going to be doing with it and all the technical stuff. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway for me on that was like, you know, once we did once we got a chance to talk about what we, our vision was, we got to also hear what their vision was. And we ultimately had really good answers and reasons why we were doing certain things. And they didn't necessarily align with their answers, but they realized that we had a vision and what we wanted to do and that our creative, our creative input was actually in one way or another an answer to what they were thinking. And so it became a collaboration versus I'm going to do it this way. You're going to do it that way. And they liked the fact that we had our own ideas and it wasn't just, we weren't just yes guys. But at the same time, we were working actively at that table at figuring out how to inc- incorporate their ideas into that idea. And so when we walked out of that meeting, we knew we had the job right then and there. And so that was a really cool thing to happen. And then from there, um, we worked with uh, the Dolly Museum to kind of put this really cool project together. And it's really just a basic conversation between uh, Gala and Breton. Gala's uh, Salvador Dolly's wife. And Breton was kind of... Um, the predominant figure in labeling what we call surrealism. Uh, he is a poet and he, uh, he was, uh, just in charge of kind of organizing and leading the, leading the charge of surrealist, the, that movement. And so, um, at one, one point he, uh, decided to kick Dolly out. And so that's what this whole conversation is about. Gala comes in and she kind of tries to convince Breton not to, kick Dolly out of the surrealist, uh, the surrealist movement. And so, uh, 1930s period piece set in Paris and we went from there, you know, and had a really good time with it. So we didn't have a whole lot of resources to work for on the financial side. Um, but we knew that we had a really good team that we could probably fall back on. And my first phone call was to Josh and, you know, and then we kind of just went from there. I knew that we'd be able to put something together, um, and really kind of stand out and, and, and deliver a project that, you don't really get a chance to do too often, you know? Sure. Um, I think one of the other projects that really stand out to me was Kilroy was here. Um, can you kind of explain how you came, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, Kilroy was here is, you know, one of Kevin Smith's next movies. It's um, in post-production right now. But can you kind of explain just the process of getting involved in that, you know, <clears throat> When you think of bigger projects, and if you're not someone that's ever really done a big movie, you might even want to touch some on Bernie the Dolphin here, but just explaining to people, like, what's the process like when you're getting involved in a larger project and there's, you know, distributors involved and there's big name talent involved and there's other people like, you know, Ringling involved and kind of what's that dance? You know, how do you kind of make it all work? Because it's very similar to Dolly, right? Um, in that respect, and then just kind of, you know, what were the key takeaways from that and dealing with that of like, oh, well, we'll, we'll never do that again, or we need to do that differently. Yeah. So, uh, you know, 
there's a couple of questions in there, but from a, from the the Kilroy side, uh, it's interest. That was a very unique project because we were pr- approaching a production, and Ringling Ringling was the client ultimately. So usually productions we have clients, but it's a that one was very different. It's almost like we were doing a commercial, but we were doing a product like a, a feature film, or you know. So it was, the contracts were very interesting, and you know, just that whole process. Um, but from Kilroy, it was unique in and itself because it was broken into three segments. Um, so right off the bat, we were dealing with something that uh, we've never dealt before, dealt with before, um, and trying to figure out how that works. And I was doing budgets for three films, but it or three different segments, but they weren't all at the same time. I was do, it is you know so there was a lot of like navigating the waters there and just kind of figuring things out as you go. But that that's another example of, um, you know, having a crew that you stood behind. And I knew the second that happened when Ringling, what they wanted to accomplish was uh, they wanted it to be an educational experience for their students, first and foremost. Right. Because if not, then why is Ringling making this film? Um, It wasn't just to have Kevin Smith make a film. Uh, It was an educational experience to their to their uh, to their students. And so we had to make sure that we were bringing in the component of uh the educators right and that were professionals that i knew that would be able to take the time to teach the students how to do their job but also do the job right so that was like a thing in itself and that was like an extra task that that was kind of put on the shoulders of the key personnel that came in and all the people that worked with the students and so it was an like a, a, a humongous success in that aspect i think a lot of those students on that production went on to do professional as professionals. They were booking jobs right off the bat. I've hired quite a few for other productions and I know both of you have as well. Right. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of the kids from the G and E team even moved out to new Orleans because when we had Joe uh, Cassano, the key grip on the third segment, he literally said like, these kids are ready to go. Like if they move to new Orleans, I'll put them on a job, you know, the next week. Yeah. So, and some I, of them did. Um, uh, Jack went out to New Orleans. And Jack, then, Devon, uh, Charlie, Huff. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, my first AC is uh, Austin Zaire. Um, yeah. I, I mean, he was just on a... Zavir. Zavir, sorry. Um, uh, he, He's French. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such a hard name. I just call him Zavir. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's my first AC. I, I book him, you know, a few times a month. He was on two jobs with me last week alone. And, and then, uh, Jeremy Turan was, um, was a grip for, for us for quite some time until he just moved up to New York, uh, three ish weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, those, those kids definitely, they stepped up and it was pretty obvious who w- took the job serious and who was just kind of along for the ride for the Kevin Smith, um, um, name, but you know, that's just, that's just life. You have, you have, those who are a little bit more motivated and those that need to kind of be pushed a little bit more. Um, but in the end, all the kids, uh, definitely learn something. Um, now when you had, you, this was a three part project and you were kind of mentioning budget. Did you get, did, and I understand you're probably not going to say numbers and that's fine. When were you given a full number that you had to splice into essentially a third or each portion had its own number attached to it each portion had its own number attached to it so when we first approached the project it wasn't supposed to be a feature film that we did we budge i budgeted out the project to be a one-week shoot in the beginning time and that was it it's supposed to be a short film and so i don't know if you guys remember what was shot but it was you know it's like a 
it was the you know the main story and then they had a, a you know they had a, i think at the time it was like the b story and it was supposed to be just that one segment and that was it you know and that was it was done but um through one way shape or form um you know they decided to come back and do two more segments and turn it into a feature film and so ultimately what we had to do was we took a script at that point a full script was written and then i had to take out the components that have already been shot and then budget for the remaining portion of it um and then go from there but the thing is that i had to add to the budget was the fact that we were going to be stopping in the middle of production everybody was going to be going home and then we were going to be doing the last segment of it uh what five months later six months later or something like that so we're going to be bringing everybody back so there was additional costs that were going to be added for that there and it was just you know wasn't recommended um it doesn't make sense to do that don't ever do it ever if you have the opportunity like or the chance to choose but uh what makes that more expensive stopping and then starting again everybody so momentum you know you're shooting the team gets into uh they you know they get into a stride and so from an efficiency standpoint things are just running really solid uh why stop that and then b once you do stop then you have to wrap all the equipment you have to wrap all the personnel you kind of close things out you close accounts out and then you fly everybody home who did fly in um and then you know you uh you you know close out payroll all that stuff and then you have to ramp all that back up so the most expensive part of that process is paying for an additional round of pre-production right and then you have to pay twice for the amount of uh of for wrap time right so normally you'd have one pre-pro window and then you'd have wrap and now you know for two segments you we got had, three, two additional segments yeah. yep exactly yeah. our, our department in g e have to deliver the trucks back and and you have above the line personnel that have to fly first class in all three times and yep. going up into nice hotels and you have um you know you mentioned something in there payroll oh, excuse me you mentioned something in there with payroll how setting up payroll i mean that's not easy and if you don't if you've never set up payroll before you know explain that process and what's needed for that because you have to have like you know have to have deposits and Mm -hmm. all that so explain why that's a hassle doing that three times for one project yeah payrolls payrolls a thing in itself because you know you uh you first you get to find the vendors that you want to work with um and there's only a few out there that work on a small budget level um, it's very, it's a, it's much easier to go out there and just, if you got a five or a $10 million film, um, and, and find a payroll company who's willing to work with you, um, and you can negotiate with them. Uh, but on small budget stuff, there's only a select few, um, that want to work with you, um, because it's, you know, others feel like it's not worth their time. Uh, and the money's just not there. And so once you find the companies that do want to work with you, um, and there's a few out there, Green Slate is phenomenal, by the way. Um, if anybody ever gets the opportunity, that Green Slate is really, really well. And that's Josh. We use them all the time on our productions, right? Uh, and um, I, I love their services. They've treated us really well. Um, it's our go-to. And I think they're actually making a name for themselves as indie indie payroll company. Um, I know they do bigger films as well, but uh, they're definitely a reputable. But um, before that, we worked with um, uh, ABS. ABS, yeah. Yep. And uh, ABS, they did the job, but, you know, they weren't, uh, when it came down to it, towards the end, they fell apart. And I had a lot of problems with them, and their customer service was horrible. They made a lot of mistakes. You know, I had to go back and correct thousands of dollars in mistakes because they just didn't have the right people doing the right job. I think they were juggling too many jobs. And again, we felt like we were the low men on the totem pole for them. 
Um, and so those are two companies that I have worked with personally. Um, but, uh, you know, once you get to that point, even still with Greenslate, you have to execute a contract with them. Um, and there's a whole process uh, with that. And then, um, you know, so once you go through the contract, you got to make sure everything's right and you negotiate the rates. Most stuff is locked in taxes and stuff, state taxes, low, if there is state taxes, uh, you know, and then, you know, fooey, suey, things like that. Those are locked in, but you can sometimes negotiate the payroll service fee and you can sometimes negotiate uh, workers' compensation fee and those things like that. And it all depends on what your uh not reputation, but your uh, experiences with them, you know, uh, do you have a good relationship with them? How many more projects do you have, et cetera, et cetera. What's the payroll service fee? Explain that. Yeah. So payroll service fee is pretty much the fee associated with them processing uh, all your payroll. Mm -hmm. And so um, though we still on the production side have to manage the actual payroll and we have to sign off and say these numbers are good, they're the ones putting this stuff together. Um, They're adding, doing the taxes. They're looking over our work. They have, you have a a payroll accountant who's essentially putting all of this stuff together and, uh, you know, and making sure that, you know, the, the times are calculated based off of what you included in there, especially on the SAGs. Once you get into unions, it becomes a lot more complicated. Right, because they double check all that for you and send all that in to the, to the unions for you and everything. Correct. Process, yeah, all yeah. That. And so they'll put these reports together for you and then it's, it's, it's our job on the production management side to sit down with those reports and review them. And sometimes there's mistakes there, sometimes there's not, but most of the time Green Slate's very, very good at what they do and they'll put the reports there and, and then you sign off on them if everything looks good and then, uh, then they cut the paychecks, right? And you can... You can either print them in-house or you can have them send paychecks out. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of when it comes to payroll, it's, it is a process. You have to set it up right. And unless you have a payroll account on set, which we have not had on our productions because um, the budget's not there and it's expensive, um, then we're doing all of the payroll stuff on top of the production management stuff. And you have to be able to input the information into the payroll company to, in order for it to do it right. And when you're doing 50, 60 people, it's a lot. Yep. Um, a little bit with workers comp. Um, explain. Well, explain workers comp. Have you had to, you know, use that at all, or you know, is that something? O- almost. <laughs> I almost had to use it one. <laughs> so actually, um, I realized that we never really, because um, I mean, if I was. The listener, I'd be interested. Like, what happened to Kevin? Yeah, <laughs> he, he's here right now. Um, well, we, we, you did I, explain that you got a bug to the eye. Well, yeah, but the final resolution. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I, I can see out of both eyes with no issues. He's um, missing one. Yeah, he's eye, not guys. a pirate. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a full time pirate. Um, it ended up that you know Mike um, called multiple times the next day, and I. Um, because of my insurance, I only had to pay a $20 copay just to get, um, the, um, you know, the ophthalmologist, um, check. So I was like, I'll, I'll pay for that, Mike. Like it's not the end of the world. So, um, so I paid that and, and then just had, they just gave me drops, um, for, um, for the, uh, inflammation and to help the scratch heal. And I think you guys covered that, which I think was just like a few dollars. Um, I don't remember. It was a, what two, yeah, two years ago at this point, but I think yeah. all in all, like it came out to like $50. Um, and I, I feel like you guys maybe added that to my paycheck, like, I an, think, I think, yeah, like yeah. an extra like hour or two of work. Cause obviously mm-hmm. I 
lost a day of work because mm-hmm. I had to go yep. home a day early. So it was kind of a, a double kick in the ass. You know, I, I'm injured and I lose a day of work. So yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure you guys took care of that for me, which I, you know, so that was the resolution, but you almost had to use workers' yeah. comp if, <laughs> yeah. it was any, yep. if it was anything further, but that was, that was all that happened. And it was uh, part of me. But I, I, the only thing I can say out of the whole in, uh, situation is it is really, really tough to drive home with one eye. <laughs> like if yeah. you're, if you're used to driving with two eyes um, and full depth perception and suddenly you have to drive with one eye and literally an eye patch. I stayed in the right hand lane and I felt like I was all over the road. It was really painful. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I cannot, I cannot believe how difficult I do not recommend anyone trying it. Um, I had several people, um, pass me and I, I had no idea. I was like, are they three inches from my car or four feet? Yeah, you um, lose all depth perception. I, it was, it yeah. was, it was rough. And I had my truck. I was, I, I hung out in the right lane going like five under the speed limit. I'm like, I'm going to get there safely yeah, and, yeah. and just, I'm not speeding. Like For sure. I feel like I would have been on the other side of the road. <laughs> um, but yeah, go ahead on um, workers' comp. Yeah, so workers' comp, I have not had to use workers' comp, and that's usually the name of the game, right? You, you don't, don't want to use yeah, it. Yeah, if you, you know, it's there in case you need it, um, but hopefully if things are going right, uh, then you don't need it. You can't prevent bugs flying into people's eyes, so that's something out of my control there. Um, I almost want to put a big net up around the house at that point. <laughs> well, I, mean, I guess explain like why for you as a producer, it's important that you have it, you know, cause I, yeah. I see that a lot of indie producers when they're coming up, they don't, they won't want to do payroll or they don't want to mess with workers comp because they just see dollar signs, but they're not realizing the risk for sure. mitigation that that all helps with. It's all risk versus reward. And what it comes down to is this. You can get you can get away with a few production companies or, excuse me, a few, a few productions and you might not need it, right? And But the thing is, is that if you're doing this as a profession, you're going to do, I'm not doing just a few productions. I'm doing this for the rest of my life, right? So eventually I will need it. And when I do need it, if it's not there, then I'm stuck with my pants around my ankles. You know what I mean? And somebody's going to get, not going to get the coverage they need, or I'm going to have to come out of pocket from the production standpoint. Or even worse, get sued. Or get sued. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so, you know, I think that's the kind of the, unfortunately the mentality with indie films and a lot of producers and a lot of production managers that go, that are out there doing that stuff. I hear horror stories, um, you know, productions being, matter of fact, I, j- I heard a horror story not the other day about a really big brand. Um, they had an independent, I won't say the brand, but they had an independent uh, production company do a lot of films with them. And, the, you know, they're constant, uh, constant reports of just the production being run horribly, uh, safety concerns. And, um, and, uh, one of the actresses, uh, uh, she got hurt extremely bad, uh, like still to this day is, is suffering from it. And it was because the production just didn't had zero regard for safety. And it was something that she complained about several times. It was something that ramped up to be a problem. Um, and they continued doing it. They didn't care. And so now, uh, you know, she won't work with that production company and that production company is probably not going to work with a big brand anymore. Um, and so, you know, you have people who are very short sighted. They want to just get the job done and get it done for X amount of dollars. And people are afraid to say no. And I understand that you need money, but sometimes you have to say no, because every time that you say yes to a job that is just undoable the right way for the amount of money, like completely undoable for that 
then what you're doing is you're taking it away from somebody who possibly could do it right. Should the you know you negotiate higher budget, or B, you're just hurting the rest of the industry. You know, and people don't have that insight. You you're, know? you're enabling them. You're enabling them. Yeah, and so then things is people think you know you want productions to be done cheaper, and then all of a sudden it's what happens is it's just not sustainable. You can do it once, twice, maybe three times, but over the long term thing of like long scheme of things, you do it five, six, seven times. If you're trying to be a professional, you will eventually fall short, and you will fail, and you'll fail big, and then you'll go away. And a lot of people don't have that kind of foresight. Well, the law, the law of probability kicks in. I yep. mean, you yeah. do a hundred jobs, you're going to need it one time. You're like, going to need you, it one time, you, absolutely. I mean, just look at that. You know, we're laughing about it now, but I mean eerily close to needing it then like if, sure. if i really you know if i couldn't see two days later yep. if i if, you know took three months for me to be able to properly see correctly like yeah you know and i exactly. know and i know based off of who you are you guys would have taken care of me oh yeah we would have had to and yeah we would have we would have 100 percent. if we didn't have workers comp then we would have had to come out of pocket for it you know and that's just the truth and so you know, and I think what I was talking about and what we're talking about translates to just much more than workers' compensation. But obviously, workers' compensation right. is one of those things that you just need right. to have. If you've got 30, 40 people working for you, be a good manager and make sure that you got right. the tools in place in order to take care of your people, you know? That also expands out to production insurance, payroll. I mean, if you're doing anything of any length of production, you should have payroll. Um, so I think from there, like, Tell us a little bit about Bernie the Dolphin, because, I mean, very rarely nowadays does an indie film, especially a kid's indie film, get greenlit to basically have a sequel. And you guys had pre-sales on that. Excuse me. You guys had pre-sales on that, you know, before you even rolled a single take. Um, so can you explain that and then explain the delivery process from a production um, company standpoint to the distributor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the pre-sales and all that portion of it is a testament to Marty Poole and, uh, and his relationship. And he's been in the industry for a really long, Marty Poole and Kirk Harris, uh, on fair with fairway films. And, uh, they're really good friends of mine. And we've since then become pretty much, you know, like team, like it's just a team we approach all of our projects with those guys for the most part. Um, you know, and we find ways to work with each other, even if it might not necessarily be the best fit, uh, for a particular piece of content, but, um, the most honest guys you can think of and, uh, Marty and, uh, was out at can I'll summarize it at one, at one point or another, uh, along with Tony. Um, three, three years back and Marty, uh, has a good relationship with Grindstone and Stan and Barry over there. And, um, they, they pretty much asked Marty if he had, uh, Marty's a sales agent as well. And so they asked Marty if he had a, a kid's film, you know, with animals, I think, I don't know if it was specifically dolphins that they asked for. Maybe it was dolphins. Um, and Marty and Tony were like, absolutely. We, you know, Tony, I'm the film commissioner of Florida. We can definitely bring a project like that down if we write a script. And so everybody, that team got together and wrote, uh, Bernie, the dolphin one. And so they knew right off the bat that if they created this film, they had a MG domestically, a minimum guarantee um, for X amount of dollars for this film, you know, uh, and they so they knew they had distribution for it. And that's a big part of making films just off the bat is can you get distribution? A lot of films get made on the indie side. You know, you can't find a distributor because you didn't have the right connections or whatever the case may be. And it just doesn't go anywhere. So they knew that if they made this film. Uh, that it would get sold and it would be worth X amount of dollars. Well, because of Marty's connections uh, to, uh, to to in the industry and on the sales side, he also had a, a uh, you know had a good relationship with Ambi and Julie Sultan over there, 
And so he and they're they're good friends, and she's amazing, by the way. Um, he called her up and told her about this project, and she uh, essentially offered to take the worldwide rights on the film and offer an MG for worldwide buy, a buyout, and uh, and that would to you know that would absorb the domestic deal with Grindstone Lionsgate. And so from there, we had worldwide sales on Burning the Dolphin One before we even turned the camera on. Uh, that does not happen very often. That means, you know, that that's something that happens with relationships and, you know, and, and being able and, and, and trust and knowing that you can execute. So it does happen, um, but you got to have the right people in the right places. So that happened. And uh, we worked with Marty at the time. We had not worked with Marty before, but we known we known we did know Marty. And so Tony worked and helped us bring the project to Florida and shoot in St. Pete. Um, and he did a really good job. I mean, film commissioner, you couldn't ask for a better film commissioner. And so he brought the film to St. Pete and, you know, Digital Caviar ended up winning the bid for the production. And that's it. And from there, we kind of, uh, we started rolling cameras and we made that film happen. And because it worked, turned out so well for what it was, I'm burning it off in one, um, we, uh, we were greenlit to make the second one um, all within the same year. When you're when you're line producing, you know you've kind of mentioned it several times today. Um, you know, saying no to projects if they're not right. So when you're line producing or even you know producing, what are those red flags that you're looking for as a warning sign for this is something we should pass on? So that's a really good question. You know, and I think there's it, the spectrum when it comes to film. So this is the way that I do it. And there's no right and wrong when it comes. To, well, there is a right and wrong, but there's also just your individual approach as a line producer. I know what it costs to make a film. I'll break down a film. I'll say, this is what it costs. If I pay everybody according to, you know, a, the standard rate, I always pay people pretty much based off of union rates to start out with. That's what I would budget the original film as. Even though they're not union, I'll pay usually tier one rates, IATSE, um, if those people aren't familiar with it, and you know similar rates in that aspect to all the unions, um, and from there I'll break the film down and you know and I'll put a cost to the film, and then from that point, then I have to analyze okay, well what kind of film is it that we're trying to accomplish, and then you have to put into other you know bring in other factors such as have we ever done a film like this before. Right. Um, I can't go out there and tell everybody, you know, you pay me professional rates when I have no films that I've ever delivered to, you know, to a distribution company. Right. So you have to add those things into the equation and then you have to be able to go back and talk to your team, the people who if you aren't going to make it for those rates that, you know, uh, are standard and they're going to be less. And you have to go back to your team and ask them if they're OK with that. And be able to convince them, like, hey, listen, you know, this is going to be a good opportunity for us or whatever the case may be. And know that your team stands behind you on making that project the right way moving forward. And if you don't have if, – if the money's not there, then you need to know that you still can at least provide your team with the resources to do their job. Because there's nothing worse than saying, hey, I can't pay you 100% what maybe you should be getting paid. And by the way, I can't even give you the tools to do your job. If you don't do those two things, then you might as well not do the job. So if I can't pay people as much, but they understand and they, hey, you know, it's a good opportunity. And there's a few films that we're working on. It's all that's always the name of the game. But there's an opportunity to grow, legitimately grow as a team. Then, OK, well, I'll at least give you what you need. And if I can give you what you need to do the job right so that I know at the end of the day, you didn't take the job and then you couldn't then you did a crappy job. You know, you want to take the job and know that, you know what, like 
You want people to walk away and go, dude, man, that guy killed it. I want to work with him on another film, right? Then um, if I can't bring those two to the table, then that's when I turn down the job. And there's also the factor of whether I like the script or not. So if I like the script, then I'll tend to push, you know, if the, if the money's not there, then I'll tend to push or stand behind it a little bit more because I live with the project for the most part for months and months before it even happens and then months afterwards. So if I like the script and I believe that it's a good fit for the team as well and as a, as a group, um, then I'll come off, I'll, I'll, I'll adjust numbers and budgets to make it try to happen for less than what it should be shot for. Um, but if all those factors aren't there, then that's when I say no to a job and it, and it happens quite often. That's, you just, you very, sum, you summarized it right there, but you guys have to say no at times. I mean, you can't be, you, you weren't yes men when you were talking on the Dolly job and you're not yes men to just other productions or producers coming to you for, for jobs. How hard is it walking away from a job? Uh, it's extremely hard. It's extremely hard. I mean, you know, you have you have this production here, and you you want you know you know how it is. You just want to you just want to shoot, right? You want we're in this to make movies, so you just want to make movies. Um, and when people have the money and they're saying, "Hey, listen, we're going to shoot no matter what," it's really hard to say like, "Well, guess what? I know you'll shoot, and I'm best of luck, but you're I'm, you're not going to shoot with me, right?" And so I've done it. I, I've turned down. I probably turned down like six or seven jobs that can, that were going to come into the area last year, 2018. And because of that, actually, a lot of jobs didn't. You know, some of those jobs didn't even shoot at all. Um, but they just weren't the right fit, and the safety wasn't there, the equipment wasn't there, and the pricing definitely wasn't there. And uh, and I didn't like the script. And so uh, we turned down a few. Some of them en- ended up being shot. And from what I heard, you know, they were kind of cool, but they just weren't the right fit for the digital caviar brand. Um, and so, uh, I, I, Josh, I know that you ended up being up on one of them, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and I heard that the project was great, you mm-hmm. know, or ended up with what you guys got was great, right? Yeah, but what you said is an interesting thing of it. Not, it's just not being a right fit for the brand. So I imagine there's probably a big percentage of that, too, that's also like evaluating the people that are bringing the project to you. And whether or not you want to get into business with them, because it's not just making a movie, you're getting into business, you're, you're making a business partner with that person. And I know that's kind of got you in the butt a little bit, like on one before. And so kind of explain that and how that, you know, how the relationship management part of it and how, you know, evaluating a potential partner is really important on on projects, you know, and not just from the standpoint of, we can't look at it just from, Oh, it's a great film. We want to do it. We need to look at the people that are involved. Cause I feel like that gets looked over a lot on the indie film. People are so hungry to just get on stuff and get working that they more often not do not look into the people they're getting into business with. Mm-hmm. And that can be, that can be a major pitfall For down sure. the road. Yeah. 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 When you, when, when you make a feature film, um, you're living with a group of people, uh, for a very long time. I mean, from start, depending on, you know, the development side and the conception of the project, but let's just go ahead and say that stuff's already in the, you know, in the can, you know, from soft pre-pro all the way to delivery. I mean, you could be dealing with uh, a a group of people or an individual for anywhere from nine months to 18 months, you know? Um, And so when you're working that long with somebody or people, 
uh, you want to have somewhat of a decent relationship with them, right? You want to be able to know that you can talk to them. Um, it goes back to what we were talking about before. If you get in a disagreement, um, that you can actually, that everybody knows that the job is the most important thing and that everybody has the job at, you know, that's at, at, at uh, at, uh, that they're most interested in making sure that that job succeeds. And so if that's what you have at the heart, then, you know, you know that you're working with some decent people. Well, uh, you know, there's a project that I worked on um, early on uh, in my career is the second feature film that I did. And unfortunately, we weren't working with a good group of people. And uh, and so there was, you know, there were issues. Every production had issues. There are issues that came up. But unfortunately, um, we ended up in a very bad place by the end of that project. And we were owed a lot of money. Um, and that money, they did not pay us for it. And so, uh, you know, I learned very quickly, we talk about lessons learned. I learned very quickly how to be very good at legal documents and paperwork and things like that. You always have a lawyer on if you want, you know, when you're production, but you know, you learn how to structure and navigate, uh, relationships in the preliminary stages, you know, in order to make these projects work and work right. And I mean, I can get into some of the specific specifics of that job if we wanted to, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean, whatever you're, whatever you're willing to share, I mean, is there anything that you guys do internally to vet potential people coming, coming to you with projects? Yeah. Well, at the time we didn't, right. It wasn't, you know, we all had common sense. And so we know generally like, you know, you want to work with somebody, you don't want to work with somebody if that person's a bad person, but what happens if they're not a bad person, right? We were very excited to be able to, you know, to have the possibility of working on this job. We did one feature film prior to that dozens and dozens. I mean, hundreds of commercials before that, but commercials are very different than feature films. And, uh, and we flew out to LA. I mean, I mean, we did the business side by the books for the most part. we we met with the client and, um, we told him that we, you know, here's the services that we can provide and this is where we're at and we're young. Um, we think outside the box. That's why we can possibly make a film like this happen, um, for the price that they were looking at. And, uh, and, um, and so, you know, it went well and the project came to Florida, right? And so we started shooting, that was 2015, the end of 2015. And, um, and it just, uh, quickly ran into issues, quickly ran into issues, financial issues, things of that nature. Um, and we didn't set up the project the right way. And because we were very ambitious and we wanted to start the project, we started work before we even had certain funds, uh, committed, um, you know, and, and we're all good human beings, right? Like, I feel like, you know, I, at the end of the day, I wanted to get a jump start on the project because I wanted to make sure it was done right. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to make sure it's done good. And we're going to get these things. And we started getting out there and getting ahead of ourselves and then come to find out the money's not there. You don't think about that. You think that like somebody's going to do this job They're they're They have the money there for sure. A hundred percent. Right. And so I'm going to make sure that I do my job and I do it right. And the thing is, is it wasn't that that wasn't the scenario. Um, and so we ended up playing catch up the entire time, you know, and we were working with balancing funds and, you know, money was trickling in, but it wasn't trickling in as uh, in accordance with the payout schedule that we had put in the contract. And, um, and it caused a lot of issues and it caused a lot of problems. And luckily we were able to absorb that as a company. It almost bankrupted us. We almost ceased, like stopped existing in 2015 because of it. Um, but, uh, we were able to absorb that and move forward. We paid our vendors out, out of our own pocket. Um, 
and we made whole with the people that we worked with so that they didn't feel have to feel the pain of that, you know, and then we kept on rolling as a company and we're still dealing with that to this day. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a huge lesson learned, you know what I mean? Huge lesson learned just because you have the opportunity in front of you. I probably should have walked away from that job. Probably should have walked away from that job, but I didn't. And I was excited and everybody wanted to do it. And we felt right about it. We felt like it was going to be good. And it definitely was not. Do you feel like that's really the job that's kind of taken you down the track of vetting more hardcore? And for sure. For sure. I think, I think, you know, those are the type of lessons that you have to learn in order to, you know, to remind yourself or to show you that there are things that can go wrong and they will go wrong. And so I learned a lot from that job when I said like contracts, uh, just personnel. There's certain things that you have to have in place before you even start a job. Uh, make sure that you have an escrow account or the money's deposited 100% of the production costs into a bank account. Uh, you know, all kind of things, you know, but um, most importantly, it's just the collaborative effort. If that's not there, if you feel like that's not there and you've got some people coming in and they just know, they know that this is the way that it is, even though they might, you know, but they're not willing to collaborate then you should probably walk away from that because nine times out of 10, that relationship is going to end really badly because it's just their expectations are, they're just unrealistic, you know? And, um, and then, you know, once that happens, there's no coming back from it. The risk reward talk that we had earlier. Um, yeah. Yeah. you guys have obviously moved past that. Uh, I mean, I know you're still dealing with some residuals of that project, uh, four years later, which is crazy. Um, but recently you guys made an announcement that you opened up a second office, um, not in Florida. Um, where, why do you guys make that, um, you know, jump to, to a second location? Yeah. Well, I mean, mostly, uh, you know, the immediate reason is because Louisiana offers, you know, uh, tax incentives, um, very, uh, very competitive, uh, percentage of, uh, qualified spends in Louisiana. Um, and you know, so as we're continuing to grow, we realize that, you know, the, the projects that are going to come to Florida, um, if they, you know, are usually going to be of limited budgets because there's not a tax incentive here. Um, and so the local counties, uh, they do a good job at offsetting that between Tyler over at uh, Tampa and uh, Tony at St. Pete. Um, they do a good job at being able to provide incentives to bring films locally here. And between the resources that we can contribute and just, you know, and the locations that are more than happy to have, it usually starts to balance out up to a certain number. And then usually like uh, that number is usually right around the $1.5 to $2 million mark. Above that, you really have to weigh out the pluses and minuses. But really, once you get into three, four, five thousand million dollars, um, it just makes sense to shoot in another state for the most part, unless there's something specific here in Florida that you can't replicate, or there's a thing that we can accomplish as a group of individuals that you that are just worth more than maybe the extra twenty percent that you might get in another state, right? And oftentimes we, we use that to sell things and we've actually are in the process of bringing hopefully a film here because of our, you know, of those additional resources. Mm -hmm. But, 
the move to Louisiana was just a strategic one. You know, we don't have a physical, like we have a physical office out there, but it's not like you can walk up to the building and there's a big DC sign out there and, you know, and there's a secretary when you walk in the building and she greets you. It's not all fancy like that. Um, it's, it's really just a strategic move. Um, we did open an office there, uh, and, um, you know, it's in preparation or expectation of films going out there. And we've got a few in the can, um, uh, that we, that we're expecting to shoot in Louisiana. And so it's just a little bit of like, if you build it, they will come. That's kind of what that's going, that's that's what Louisiana is. But you guys aren't leaving here. No, we're not leaving here. Now Florida's home. This is home. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Florida's home. And I know you've had a lot of those conversations with, um, a lot of the local crew and personnel. And I think we all realize like this, that you guys are here for the long haul. Um, but having two locations doesn't hurt quite for frankly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if I have the opportunity to bring a lot for of business. No, it's not. It's not. It really isn't. It just gives you more options, you know, and you have to be able to explore those options when you own a business. You know, you can't you can't just limit yourself to one thing. But Florida is home and if uh, I have a chance to shoot here, then I'll do everything that I can to bring it here. How hard is balancing development with production? Because I know me and you have had several talks about this and you know, in twenty eighteen we were like crazy busy. And then you kind of get into a slow year afterwards. But when you're only so many people, you have that delicate, you know, even just on an individual level, like I have that hard task of balancing development of projects with, you know, just staying working, mm-hmm. you know? So how hard is that on a, on a company level with the, the whole, you know, team and everything that you've got going? It's really, it's really, really hard. And I, you know, it's one of those things where you have to go into it with a, with a, with a, a projection of what you want to be accomplishing in two to three years, right? You know, production services is a, is a very interesting, it's a very interesting realm of business. Um, you know, because production services, when you look at an individual line item budget, um, you have to find the items in those line items that really you can capitalize on as a service perspective when it comes to films. Companies aren't bidding for the most part on indie films, like it's not like you're looking at five, six other production companies and they're all going, well, I'll do it for 1.2 and I'll do it for 1.1. And, you know, and there's a, and there's a, a profit margin in there for those. It doesn't really go down like that. Um, and that's, we learned that from just doing it, right? You know, mm-hmm. you go into it and you think that, but at the end of the day, you know, an indie film is not going to take a 20% profit margin, you know, 1.2 and then tack on 20% because a production company wants to make 20%, right? It just doesn't, it, it just, you'd never make the film. They're, they're hurting for money as it is to make it for 1.2. Uh, so, um, you know, you have the production services side and that's the portion that I see in my head that keeps the crew and keeps the team together. Right. That's that's what I'm starting to learn more than anything. The production services side keeps keeps food on people's tables and keeps them locally. The important people that need to stay local um, so that they don't leave, because without my team, then I don't have a company without my company. Then, you know, what, what am I doing this for? Right. So the production services side is important to me because I have to keep everybody working. And so I try to do that as much as possible. And that's ultimately what I use to pay my bills as a line producer. That's my bread and butter, you know, production manager, line producer. You know, I haven't produced any award winning films yet. You know, I've got a bunch of ideas that are really cool. I'd like to eventually direct one film one day. You know, I have creative stuff that I really love. I love writing. and I'm in the process of hopefully selling a few scripts, but that has not paid the bills yet. 
So line producing and production services is really what we do in order to keep the, the machine running in preparation of the one film that hopefully we do or a few films that we start to eventually do on the development side that are internal of DC. Um, and so that making sure that we have a script that we've either developed and written in-house or have optioned or, you know, something along those lines where eventually it becomes ours through and through. And then we move forward with that is kind of the name of the game, you know, ultimately a, a, a mini studio mentality. Um, but you can't just always work for the company right? you on the company for the company, right? If you're constantly working for the company, then as a manager or owner, you're not working on the company. And if you go a certain amount of time not working on the company, then you will start to see everything that you worked hard for, all the money and the income start to all of a sudden make a downturn and start to go on the decline. Because unfortunately, if you're working just for the company 24 seven, you're not getting out in front of the company and, uh, and you don't have the big vision. And so that's where the bigger that you get, the harder it is, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to let go, but you have to realize that you can't be that person that's just doing it. You know, I love being on set. I want to be on set doing it, but I can't because if I'm not thinking two steps ahead, then, um, then, then ultimately what I'm doing is going to fail. Got very philosophical very well, quickly. I'm sure you can relate <laughs> to that as well. I mean, yeah. Um, I, I can. Uh, you know, we just opened up our studio um, earlier this year, 2019. It's a gorgeous um, studio, by the way. Thank you. Appreciate that. Every time that. I walk in, I'm like, dang, <laughs> my office right over there. What is hey, hey, when, when <laughs> you got a little spot for me? When, when you all are ready, I, I wouldn't, I'd be uh, <laughs> quite open to um, doubling. And, um, you know, you guys have half, we have half, and yeah. we all we all help each other out. Yeah, so yeah, for sure. force Josh to drive to the other side, as I say, drive to the other side of the state. Um, <laughs> I'm you know, already doing it. Yeah, you're, you, you, you moved way out there. Um, um, and I digress. Um, you have to be in front of the clients and you have to, you know, boots on the ground, but you also have to be on set. You know, it is, it is, um, juggling that kind of, um, for the company. I, I know Josh, I've sent you and, you know, Dylan, Andrew, uh, Austin, I've sent a lot of people out on jobs on my behalf because I'm in a meeting or, I am, you know, even the, uh, on vacation and you know, I, I was up in Indiana for, uh, for a very close friend's uh, wedding about two months ago. And, you know, 24 hours before, uh, I'm hopping on a plane, I get a call from a, a recurring client. Hey, this last minute thing, three day job needs to happen literally starting tomorrow. Yeah. And I'm like, well, shit, I don't want to say no because because that's income and it's a recurring client, but I can't be there. So it's a matter of being able to send your team, your crew members to be able to facilitate the job and have no hiccups. Um, while I'm on a, in, uh, in this situation, I was on a, on a vacation, but there've been other times where I'm, I have a meeting scheduled for, you know, Mike, you'll definitely understand you, you have a meeting on the books for six weeks out. Cause that's the earliest available for X, Y, Z reason. Yep. And then there's a job that happens that day and, yep. or a different obligation. You're like, well, I'm not moving this. Yep. I'm not moving this meeting. That's six that I just, I've had the bond, the books for six weeks. For like, sure. You're not, you're not moving that. So you have to send someone else out. So you're working on the business or for the business, yep. uh, maybe even at the same time. So, uh, if you don't, if you have that income coming in, you're able to be in front of the client. Um, but you also have to 
um, manage expectations. And I think that's a big one that, you know, on, on my, you know, our jobs with TSM and your jobs with DC, they're, they're very different scale. They're, there's no denying that. Um, but the end goal is all the same. It's making sure that the client the is same. happy and, yeah. and, uh, you know, you guys are doing, you know, uh, what, 15 jobs a year, 10 jobs a year. Um, you know, depending on how you classify quote unquote a production, um, we're doing, um, you know, quite a bit more, but we're also, um, a different, a different. Uh, yeah, we're actually sometimes doing less than that. Less, you know. Now, now, two thousand since two thousand eighteen, we've we average. We don't really do commercial work that much anymore. I uh, will do it for specific clients or ones that pop up, but we really don't touch that. Um, uh, currently, uh, and you know, and um, it's just so like five six jobs a year yeah you but know? your jobs are a lot are a lot longer i mean they're they're either week-long jobs they're one month jobs you guys are you know diving into development yep. months in two, advance two months if you i mean i mean case of bernie a dolphin you're looking at six to months to a year i mean from Depending pre-production on, yeah. to post to release yeah because you guys were really really involved on bernie yep. so you guys weren't just the production services you know show up and and press record on on um the film you guys were actually in the on the development side to my understanding and post-production as and well. post, yeah slight development side uh and post-production yeah yep so yeah, delivered, yep. so that so that's technically one job but it was a very large scale job when you take all the different facets um into consideration um we just actually um just last week we just hit our 100th job of the year but once again our jobs can be a a, literally a two-hour job is one production for xyz reason you know someone comes into the studio and and knocks out four headshots that's one job but it, the the end goal is the, still the same is making sure the yeah. client is happy in the end um, For sure. whether it's a six month job or a two hour job in the studio it doesn't really matter um, and and you know that's just an, kind of answering what Josh was just saying um, we we're in this industry to make um, pretty images and mm-hmm. and you want to make sure that um, that that doesn't stop and having yep. a, a solid team around you is is critical for sure a hundred percent yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we really appreciate you coming on, bro. Like, I, I feel like we could chat with everyone we've brought on so far. I feel like these could be like three, four hour interviews, yeah. you know, which is just fun talking film. Yeah, really it is. is. I mean, we can get into it and just kind of geek out all day long, yeah. you know, if we wanted to. Yeah, and, for sure. and that's the crazy thing. We've talked, we've talked for this long already today and we didn't even get on everything. You know, like there's still topics and film projects that we didn't even, you know, talk about issues and all that stuff. So definitely at a later date, like to have you back on, maybe uh, if we can suck Conrad or Todd out with you, you know. Yeah, yeah. They would love to come out. Yeah. 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 I I definitely would like to hear Conrad's perspective on some of this stuff because even though you two have known each other, you said fifth grade. Yeah. Um, Fifth grade, yeah. You know. There, there's di- different viewpoints for, oh, for, for, sure. for everybody. Yep. And, um, you know, even asking him some of the same questions, you might get a slightly different response, which yep. is always really interesting to me, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're your partners uh, in a business and yet you still have different opinions. For uh, sure. Don't be scared, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't like to be on, you know, camera or whatever. But also Todd, too, because I think from a, you know, post-production manager standpoint and just like a, you know, technology you know, cinephile, basically, he would have a lot of interesting stuff to say. Um, but yeah, man, 
So we appreciate you. I, I, I have I have two more questions. I oh, mean, we're man. we're already we're over. So we what, might are we, as, what are we at right now? Uh, we're that? we're at we're definitely on a part two on this one. Oh, okay. So wow. so for those of you that are listening, this is part two. I can already guarantee that. <laughs> it's gonna make me record my intro. <laughs> yes, yes. We're we're having to redo that for sure. Um, for those that want to watch DC projects, um, you know, can you can you give a list of some of the projects? Um, you know, I know we mentioned Dropity. Um, that's not out, but Bernie one, Bernie two. Um, what else can people? You know, we're, we're, if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you like media, you like films, and um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna. S- seek these projects out and just yeah. watch them in the background. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, as far as like, you know, the big the big ticket items are like, you know, film side and like if you go on streaming services and stuff like that, we have three projects. Uh, as of December 13th, we'll have three projects. It'll be uh, Burning the Dolphin 2 comes out December 13th. Um, and so we'll actually be putting a link up, by the way, quick shout out, we'll be putting a link up uh, to... Um, I don't know if this will be out before then, but, uh, this, this will be out after December 13th. Yeah, so you'll uh, be good. But, uh, but anyways, December 13th, uh, we'll be putting out, um, you know, a link so that you can come watch the premiere. It'll be taking place, but it's a day and date. So, uh, you know, it will also be going to, uh, VOD services. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, crazy Lake, our first film, you can watch that on like, Amazon, iTunes, things of that nature. And there's burning the dolphin one and burning the dolphin two, as far as feature films go. And then uh, the rest of the stuff that we shot in 2018 is still in post-production post uh, post-production side. Um, and so you can't watch that stuff yet. Uh, but, you know, commercial stuff is just on our website or the Dolly Museum and things like that. So three feature films currently today that you can watch. And the Dolly, you have to go to the Dolly to watch Yeah, that. it's an actual exhibit. Yep. That's a part of it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I highly recommend it. I know I, I was just telling you, Mike, that I'll, I'll be, um, this holiday season, I'm going to be making a little trip over there. Send, send cool, uh, yeah. Connor to daycare and I'm, and the wife and I are just going to, you know, on a random Tuesday or whatever, we're, we're going to head over there and watch that one. Yeah, cool. Is yeah. it just a normal admission to the museum? Yep. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. And then you're just, you got to go through the exhibit and stuff like that. Which is, I, it's worth it. We've, we've done the Dolly on two different occasions. We moved here in 2012 and my wife and I have made two different times, um, to go over there. So just the Dolly in itself is, is yeah, worth it's a it. beautiful museum. Um, and they're always, they're always changing the exhibits every six, seven, eight months. Um, but this one, now you get a little visual piece on into what DC did. And, uh, I, I definitely recommend it. Now, Bernie one is on basically anywhere. Yeah, pretty much anywhere. Uh, uh I don't, I don't think, I can't remember if it's on Netflix or not. It was, but, it's not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But it was pretty much on every Amazon, uh, Amazon Hulu, yeah, I think it Hulu. Is, it is yeah, on Hulu. Okay. On Hulu. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I yeah, thought yeah. it was on Hulu, but yeah, it's pretty much on all the platforms. Okay. I just not uh, not Netflix. Yeah, um, and then Bernie Dolphin Two will probably be the same thing. Okay, yeah. so well, Hulu is a, a big one that um, you know uh, people will be able to pretty easily see that one. Yeah, which is good. Um, yeah, that that was that was kind of the big one that I wanted to ask. Uh, outside of that, uh, last last question: uh, favorite movie and why? Oh, the favorite movie in a while. I have to. I have he to. He ends ask. every one of them with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I always have a, a league of your own. A <laughs> league of your own. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, I just want to dance, you know? I just want to dance. <laughs> um, <laughs> my favorite go-to movie is, and I say this all the time, um, it's just kind of like my standard, uh, is Braveheart. 
and Braveheart. It's it's to me like you know. Long story short, I watched this when I was a kid, and to this day I can watch Braveheart, and every single time it's on, I will watch it from beginning to end. You know what I mean? No matter what, it, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. If it's on, I want to sit down and watch it. And if you really get into the reasons of why. I mean, it really is a perfect movie through and through. I mean, it's got a love story. It's got tragedy. It's got action scenes. It's got your monumental moments. And then it's got your just the nuanced moments that are just like, you know, to me, it's like on that next level. It's like a lot of what Game of Thrones works on, right? Like these big battle scenes. The battle scenes are freaking amazing, you know. And then it's just personal. And it's about this dude who just really did all of this because because he they took away the person that he loved more than anything so at the heart of it all it's this love story um and it's a revenge story and so braveheart is like kind of like my go-to i mean i can geek out on a million other movies that i love um but you know i think that one's just um, my most comfortable hands down best movie so we now know how to get mike into a room you know <laughs> you're saying hey come on over here oh give me five minutes you start playing braveheart he's Brave in he's, he's, a, he's in the room in seconds yeah. he's like what's up what, <laughs> you, you called <laughs> I'm watching a movie. Yeah, it'll backfire. It may real not, it may not, yeah, I was gonna say it may not be very smart. To yeah, use it'll that. backfire fast. But if you yeah. need him in the room for something, then quick, <laughs> easy. But yeah, that's definitely my go-to. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, brother. We appreciate. No, appreciate you. you guys having me. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's the end of the podcast. What do we need people to do for us? We need people to leave us a review on either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever they listen to their podcasts. Yeah, and that's pretty important for us because, you know, as we grow and bring on new guests, it's going to help us kind of get to the top of those rankings and, you know, be able to bring new and more important people on. And right. on that note, if you have anyone that you would think we should talk to or any topics you want us to, uh, to cover, please reach out to us on uh, Instagram at uh, FGI Podcast. Send us a message. It goes to Josh and I, and we will uh, we will talk to you there. I'll just forward it to Kevin. Yeah, make me to do the work. Yeah, that's what I'm good at. That puts a wrap on this episode. We record this live at Two Stories Media in Clearwater, Florida, and it's sponsored by Greenland Entertainment and Two Stories Media. <laughs>